This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Bridget Dowd, in for Tiara Vianne this week, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks for listening for the week of January 16th, 2023. Here are some top stories. Following the 2022 general election, Maricopa County took days upon days to count all its ballots for statewide races, including several razor-thin contests. As KJZZ's Ben Giles reports, one county official has ideas to get the public the election results they demand sooner. According to Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer, Arizona's election officials are caught between a rock and a hard place. The state offers voters a number of ways to receive and cast their ballot by mail, in person on election day, or the increasingly popular option of returning a mailed ballot by hand. You uh, have a very voter-friendly system that accommodates uh, dropping off your early ballot on election day up until 7 p.m. Richard says it takes time and effort to process those so-called late early ballots. Last year, Maricopa County voters returned a record-setting number of late earlies on election day nearly 300,000 ballots that had to be scanned and signature verified before they were counted. But simultaneously, you have a whole host of people who want to be able to call the results of a close race within the first 24 hours. Under the state's current election law, Richer says it's impossible to reconcile those competing interests, lenient rules for returning ballots, and a demand for winners and losers to be declared sooner. So uh, then just everyone gets mad and it's real pleasant. In a 28-page memo released last week, Richer offers suggestions for how to tweak Arizona election law and speed up the vote-counting process. Chief among those is a proposal to eliminate late early ballots by setting a deadline. No mail ballots could be returned to polling places after 5 p.m. the Friday before an election. Not everyone is on board. Alex Gilada is the Arizona State Director for All Voting is Local. He sees more people voting in the way that they choose as being a problem as an election official, maybe as a person under pressure to produce results uh, and get results out quicker. And uh, I think that needs to be balanced against the needs of voters. Tammy Patrick, a senior advisor at the Democracy Fund, understands Richard's plight. She worked for more than a decade in the Maricopa County Recorder's Office. But she says there are better ways to speed up the vote counting process than eliminating a popular last minute voting option. It's important, I think, to look at what do Arizonans like to do? How do they like to return their ballots? And typically tens of thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands of voters in Maricopa County over the decades have decided that they like to drop their ballots off at the polls on Election Day. Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs is also no fan of the proposal. She spoke out against it while she still served as Secretary of State and worries removing this voting option could lead to confusion and rejected ballots. But before anything gets to the governor's desk, it'd have to be vetted by the Arizona legislature. And the Republican gatekeepers of the legislative process are having a completely different conversation. The head of the Senate Elections Committee falsely believes the last two elections were stolen and other GOP lawmakers want to ban early voting entirely. Still, Maricopa County's Richer, a fellow Republican, is hopeful there's room for a healthier debate about election policy. I wanted these conversations to be departing at least from a place of facts and a place of understanding as to how elections actually work. That's productive, and we can have those conversations. A debate based in fact is something Richer says has been largely missing in Arizona since 2020. Ben Giles. KJZZ News, Phoenix. 
Long before there were grocery stores and fast food restaurants, ancient cultures found sustenance in the Southwest through innovative farming techniques. A nonprofit seed bank in southern Arizona is keeping that agricultural past alive, restoring traditional crops and foods that in some cases go back hundreds of years. As KJZZ's Al Macias reports, Native Seed Search is not only preserving thousands of crops adapted to the region's arid landscapes, but also their ties to the Southwest's Native American cultures. We'll break up into two groups. One are going to do peas over here in the trellis. And then the other, we've got Guatemalan purple fava beans. That's Joel Johnson, uh, conservation so garden manager at the Native Seed Search Garden in Tucson. He's directing about a dozen volunteers at the garden on a chilly morning in December. Back in 1983, the founders of Native Seed Search were working on a food security project to support the Tohono O'odham Nation in establishing gardens for their sustainable food needs. Andrea Carter is the outreach and education manager for Native Seed Search. She says the founders were told by tribal elders that they wanted the seeds for the foods their grandparents used to grow. They're working in these communities and it becomes clear both to themselves and to the folks they're working with that there's a need to preserve the seeds that are less and less being grown. And so this collection of the seeds took place. Seeds were also donated by members of the tribal nations they were partnering with. This led to Native Seed Search becoming a collector and preserver of endangered traditional seeds from communities in the Southwest. That project 40 years ago led to this garden and seed bank. According to Johnson, the garden manager... About 70% of the varieties that are in the ground have uh, an affiliation to an indigenous community. Seeds are not only planted at the Tucson Garden. Native Seed Search has partners around the Southwest who use the seeds, and those partners also have a voice in what gets planted. So something may not be a number one priority for regeneration of the seed bank, but it is a really high priority for Native American free seed request or some of these other seed access programs. Partners with Native Seed Search receive bulk quantities of seeds at no cost in exchange for a portion of the harvest being returned to Native Seed Search. Non-Native partners are asked to return half of their seed harvest, while Native American farmers are asked to return one quarter of their seed harvest. Anyone can buy seeds from Native Seeds, but there's programs to encourage and facilitate seed access amongst Native community members. Mm. Along with a garden, which is growing crops year-round, Native Seed Search also has a storage facility where seeds are kept, some in cold storage, others in bins, as they are tested and prepped for shipping. My name is Dick Gates, and I'm the Seed Lab coordinator. After the seeds are brought in from the garden, then we have to process them and then make sure that they're viable, that they're healthy seeds. Uh, so in here, we do the germination testing to, to make sure that enough of them germinate. About 100 miles north of the Native Seed Search Garden is the Salt River Pima Maricopa community east of Scottsdale. There are about 15,000 acres of tribal land that once grew many different kinds of crops. Jacob Butler is a newly elected member of the tribal council. He says back in the 1930s, yeah, so farming as way of life kind of went away here with the loss of our water and, and the inability to pay for water because we weren't a, a cash-based society at the time. Butler says there is a renewed interest by the younger generation. Now with the youth, there's a lot of interest in where their food comes from. There's a lot of um, interest in, in returning to a traditional um, diet or at least incorporating traditional foods into our diet. Butler is also chairman of the Native Seed Search Board of Directors. 
He says the relationship between the organization and tribal communities has evolved. He says early on, some tribal communities were distrustful of Native Seed Search, while some board members were apprehensive of suggested changes that called for greater Southwestern tribal representation on the board. At the end of the day, all the founders were 100% in support of what we're doing. Um, and, and I think a lot of our community members are now too. Butler says he has seen the payoff of those efforts with the youth in his community. You can ask some of these kids and they'll tell you, oh, this is a, that's a tepri bean, or they'll tell you in the, the language, that's, that's buff, or um, like that to me is like the, the single greatest achievement that this program's had is the impact to our youth and the understanding of, of rekindling a relationship with these foods. Butler says in some cases, foods are being reintroduced that have been absent from Native American diets for generations. Across Native American communities and in the Tucson Garden, that restoration work continues. Al Macias, KJZZ News, Phoenix. This is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Upcoming film festivals in Chandler, Scottsdale, and Sedona offer something for all viewers. KJZZ's Tom Maxidon turns his lens on what's coming to a theater or even a TV near you. Hey, yeah, um, I was just calling about the ad at the hotel. Yeah, have you, um, found anybody? Uh, I can't begin to tell you what a savior this is for me, you answering the ad. That's a clip from The Shed, starring Eva Hamilton, who was born and raised in the Valley. It's nominated for Best Suspense Thriller Horror Shorts at the 7th Annual Chandler International Film Festival, which begins this weekend. The plot centers on a struggling escort played by Hamilton who responds to an advertisement for a house sitter, only to discover the agenda of a desperate mother who will do anything to feed her monstrous son. It is pretty creepy. It's a short, but we really have a lot that kind of happens in a pretty short runtime. It's kind of an homage, a throwback to 80s horror. Produced by L.A.-based Mooncat Motion Picture Company, Hamilton co-wrote and directed the project. It's a really interesting premise. I mean, it really looks at the lives of two women in very different positions in their lives, dealing with motherhood and survival and kind of just existence amidst a lot of very intense situations. The festival boasts 120 films, and actor Rob Schneider is expected to attend. Next on the marquee, the fifth annual Worldwide Women's Film Festival in Scottsdale premieres February 17th. Out of over 130 films and videos submitted, 45 selections made the director's cut, according to festival president Kim Henneke. We've got horror, sci-fi, we've got the LGBTQ plus community, romance, comedy, documentary, music videos, and then we do have some web series. So honestly, we have something guaranteed for everybody. She says there's two main criteria judges use at the outset of their deliberations. First, a woman must be behind the camera in a principal role. That's the most important thing. And it has to be a woman-driven story about women. You know, like about two guys drinking beer, talking about women, that's not going to happen. And I'll tell you one thing, a film was submitted just with that premise. But what about audiences who want to get out of the valley? What are we going to do? Road trip. 
For almost three decades, the 29th annual Sedona International Film Festival has boasted best in show. Its cavalcade of movies starts February 18th. This year, legendary actress Jacqueline Bissett will accept an award for her lifetime of achievements. She's, of course, a multi-talented actress and just a beautiful human being. And she's in a brand new film called Lauren and Rose, where she plays Rose. And she's been committed to helping the filmmaker and travel with the film. That's Festival Executive Director Pat Schweiss, who says he's also excited about the premiere of Condition of Return, starring Dean Cain and Annalyn McCord, who will be on hand. The film was shot by local movie makers at locations in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Paradise Valley, Sedona, and the Verde Valley. People are going to recognize some of the locations and the locales that they shot in, including a scene that takes place up here in the Verde Valley Courthouse. So it's kind of exciting how all over the state of Arizona they've used as much local talent as they possibly could as far as the cast, the crew, the extras. It's really going to be quite a wonderful celebration of Arizona. Back in the metro, the Greater Phoenix Jewish Film Festival starts February 19th in Scottsdale and Tempe. It features I, Mordecai, starring Judd Hirsch, whose character is a Holocaust survivor, recapturing his youth after learning how to access Jewish music on his phone. You gotta get some tunes back in your life. Have you ever road tested a pair of beats? What is that? Are you kidding? <laughs> May I see your phone, Mr. Samuel? It's I, Mordecai. Mordecai. I imagine you're a classical music man? Yeah. I, I prefer klezma. This is all Jewish music. Uh, mostly gone by now. Uh, no such thing as gone on the internet. Organizers of the festival went with a hybrid approach this year due to ongoing health concerns and advice from planners for similar events. We're kind of torn. We feel like the virtual part of a festival is always going to be with us, but it's certainly not the same as being in person and feeling the vibe and everybody's talking about the film and enjoying being an audience member with others. That's Sue Adato, co-executive director of the festival. She says in addition to the feature-length movies, there's a submission contest involving film students in Israel. Our committee probably looks at 60 shorts, and then it's four winners are chosen with cash prizes. So those are always a highlight to be featured amongst other films. There's no highlight reel long enough to showcase all of what upcoming festivals have to offer, but there's bound to be several flicks worth your time. Tom Maxidon, KJZZ News, Phoenix. A proposed plan from Governor Katie Hobbs's office would expand a state-funded scholarship program to include undocumented high school graduates. From the Fronteras desk in Tucson, KJZZ's Elisa Resnick has more. The Arizona Promise program supports low-income students who aren't fully covered by Pell Grants and other federal financial aid. But undocumented students, known as DREAMers, aren't eligible for federal financial aid because of their immigration status. Hobbs's proposal aims to change that by using state funds to fill the gap. Jose Patino is a DACA recipient in Phoenix. We're cautiously optimistic. Our role that we see is like, how can we support this effort to become reality? Because right now it's just a proposed program. We want to make sure it actually becomes law and actually DREAMers have this opportunity. Arizona DREAMers were barred from both in-state tuition and state-funded scholarships for years, thanks to an old state law. Voters approved a measure to open both back up last year. If approved, Hobbs's new program would use some $40 million to fund DREAMer tuition. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. This is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. And now from the show, another icon is gone. Here's KJZZ's Nick Sanchez and Lauren Gilger. 
Last weekend, Mill Avenue said goodbye to an old-school bookstore on its most iconic street. The show's Nick Sanchez was there on the store's final day. Mill Avenue has lost another longtime favorite. Old Town Books, a tiny space packed with used books, outlasted everyone from Long Wongs to Rula Bula. Until last weekend, when the store shut for good with a closing sale. Locals have long wondered why the main drag in a bustling college town can't even hold on to a McDonald's. But in this case, it makes more sense. Old Town Books opened in 1987. The original owner, who didn't want his name associated with the shop, passed away last year. His family donated the entirety of its inventory to the Tempe Public Library, which ran the sale and kept the proceeds. Vic Linoff, who volunteered at the sale, thinks the owner would have been pleased. His number one concern was that books stay in circulation, literacy, that people read. And the fact is that, um, look at, uh, we probably have 50 people here, and they're all filling bags with books, which means they're going to homes, and uh, they're going to stay in circulation. And I know that would have pleased him very much. It was a bittersweet day. Book lovers filled a bag for $15, while Linoff remembered the owner, who was a friend. Uh, I've been sitting in the store uh, on a little stool that he sat on, and I think, no, this isn't right. <laughs> he should be sitting here, not me. Inside the cramped shotgun-style store, customers stood shoulder to shoulder, flipping through aged pages. Scott Semkin and Megan Mingle were at the sale, hoping to add a few books to their collection. They have fond memories of the store from when they started dating. Just, you know, early college days, walking. That's right. We, uh, we used to go on <laughs> dates here, so it was kind of fun to like, browse the bookshelves, and it was very romantic. I know, you know the way to her heart. They're both disappointed to see a longtime Tempe staple shut down for good. I think it was one of the highlights of Mill Avenue, where most of them are... Uh, kind of chain restaurants and bars and everything now. Um, this is one of the last places that kind of had some historic mm -hmm. had some real character. background to it. Linoff notes that this was the last mainstream bookstore in downtown Tempe. The original Changing Hands bookstore moved to a strip mall a few miles south in 1998, and a Borders location closed more than a decade ago. How can a university town not have a bookstore or a lot of bookstores? Linoff hopes that someday soon, that will change. For KJZZ's The Show, I'm Nick Sanchez. The question, what did they know and when did they know it, has become a staple of investigation since Watergate. Now new research shows ExxonMobil knew the potential global warming impacts of fossil fuels as far back as the late 1970s. From KJZZ's Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. Documents have previously established that Exxon executives were aware of the threat of global warming since at least 1977. The new study in the journal Science provides the first full dive into the company's own climate models. It finds Exxon's ample analyses accurately predicted global warming from fossil fuel burning in keeping with external experts' models. The authors say this suggests the company understood climate change as clearly as academic and government scientists did, yet still misled the public and investors by sowing doubt, disparaging climate models, playing up uncertainties, and touting a false global cooling consensus. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. One of Mexico's most notorious drug cartel leaders has sent a letter to Mexican officials claiming his treatment in U.S. prison has been unfair and inhumane. From the Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, KJZZ's Kendall Blust reports that he's requesting to be returned to Mexico. 
Joaquin El Chapo Guzman was extradited to the U.S. in 2017 after twice escaping prison in Mexico and is serving a life sentence for drug trafficking and homicide, among other charges related to his leadership of the Sinaloa cartel. Now he's reached out to Mexican leaders because of his alleged treatment in a maximum security prison in Colorado. A letter from his lawyers to Mexico's ambassador to the U.S. on January 10th says he hasn't seen the light of day in six months, hasn't received adequate health care, and has little contact with his lawyers or family. Pero... President Andrés Manuel López Obrador said his government takes claims of human rights abuses seriously and will look into the situation. However, Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard told reporters there's likely little Mexico can do while Guzmán is serving his U.S. prison sentence. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, Amosio. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation, Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation, Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Bridget Dowd, in for Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.